Thank you, John. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to <coughs> turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 2. And we finished chapter 1 last week, and uh, you can see by now uh, the, the magnitude of, of the book of Proverbs and the scope of the great principles for us that it has. And we took a long time to give a good intro on the book and then uh, come through that chapter uh, very carefully and, and very prayerfully. And uh, boy, we, we've gleaned so much from chapter 1 to help us. Last week, we closed out with the message on the laughter of God, and we talked about uh, understanding God's condemnation and, and all of that. In the book of Proverbs, uh, within it, it, has, uh, it provides for us the, the three most important ingredients to us uh, as God's children trying to struggle through this life. You know, God could have taken us to heaven the moment we got saved, but we know that he didn't, and we know that he left us down here to basically finish what he started. And uh, Christianity is an ongoing line of men and women who find the Lord Jesus Christ as their own personal Savior who basically fulfill uh, in their life what God uh, started but then took Christ back to heaven and ordained us to do it. And to get through that, God gives us, uh, uh, in the book of Proverbs, really lays it out, three great ingredients that we need to have as God's children after we get saved. And uh, in a true biblical sense, God gives you knowledge. And we've talked about these before. Knowledge is facts. And you'll find that the Bible is filled with facts and facts that you'll carry on in everything in life. But then knowledge is not enough. When you get the facts and you take the facts of God and you apply them into your life, then you have what the Bible calls wisdom. And wisdom is simply the facts of God which are applied to any given situation in your life. When a child of God takes the facts the knowledge and the wisdom and applies it, then he gets the third ingredient that the book of Proverbs talks about, and that is understanding. Understanding will simply be how God figures into every scenario in your life. You'll never fully understand something till you see God's working in it behind the scenes in that particular situation. You can go to secular history class and you can get all kinds of facts and you can even get wisdom. But you'll never get understanding because once you realize that God created it all and everything is in place by his command and he's doing a work through it, then all the little components that you have to look at and deal with in your own life, the way you understand it is to simply step back and see what God is doing in your life. That's understanding. And as we enter into chapter 2, this will be a very practical message today. This will be something that I think that will help many of you uh, because we're going to begin to see the incredible process of what it takes to really get the Bible down. And uh, I found this some 35 plus years ago, and, uh, and I made it my home. Uh, Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 9 is where the last 35 years I've basically lived my life in, in, in one sense. I followed his concepts, just like the Bible says that the instructions of a father to his son, as best I could. And I, and I, and I really truly believe, uh, you know, I really truly believe that most, if not uh, many, if not most of God's people uh, today really do want to know the Bible. I really believe that. 
I believe that many of God's people, if not most of them, if you would sit down and ask them, do you, do you really want to, I mean, you could find a child of God who way out in left field doesn't care about it, I guess, but, but I think if you sat down and had an honest conversation with most Christians who are truly saved, I think most of them would tell you, you know, I, yeah, I want to know the Word of God. I want to know the Bible. But I also know that even though many would say that, there's only a very few that will do what they need to do to really get the Bible. You see, wanting it is one thing, but and getting it is something else. And I want to talk to you about that process today. This is the same process that God showed me many years ago in my life, and I put it to work in my life. And I can honestly say, and I don't claim to be uh, know everything about the Bible, but I will tell you this, whatever I do know about the Bible, I would take it back to Proverbs chapter 2 and follow in this line of, of teaching that he talks about. You know, when it comes to God's people and the Word of God, uh, I've observed over the years you find th about three basic groups, three basic profiles. Bible's full of profiles. And uh, you, you learn to see scenarios and circumstances in life by, by, by understanding the profiles in the Bible. Uh, people, the first group you find, of say people, you find people who know absolutely nothing about the Bible. This has always been an amazing, amazing thing to me. I mean, I've met people over the years of my life that have been saved 10, 15, 20, 30, you know, 40 years. And they know absolutely nothing about the Bible. I don't know what they did all 40 years of their life. Oh, I mean, they'll have a few things, you know, that they heard the preacher say or somebody said, but, uh, but uh, they couldn't explain it if their life depended on it. They're totally and completely inept when it comes to the Bible. And after 30 or 40 years, they still is just like the day they got saved. And yet, they're very good people. They're not problem people. They don't go around, many of them don't go around causing problems in churches. They're, they're good people. But they just never put forth the effort to learn it. So they go to church all the time. I've known p Christians that were in churches every time the door was open. And they've been saved 10, 15, 20, 30 years. And at the end of that time, they don't know any more about the Bible than the day they walked in the place. That's always been an amazing thing to me. But it's a true thing. I've seen it. The second group are people who, who I classify as they know some things about the Bible. They don't know the Bible, but they've learned some things about the Bible. And uh, there's a lot of Christians that are in this category. A lot of pastors and Bible teachers are in, in this one. They know a lot of things about the Bible, but they really don't know the Bible. Uh, they, uh, the, 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 and it shows in, in their preaching, or it shows in their teaching. You can almost, when you get to a point in your life, you can almost tell where a guy is at with the Word of God by the content of his message. A lot of things you don't understand about preachers, I guess you have to be a preacher to understand, but there's a real circuit of, of just passing your messages around to other guys. There's pastors who get on the Internet on Monday, and they'll get a great sermon uh, to preach the next week. It's filled with it. And they'll, they'll get information out of other guys' books. They'll read all the other material. I had a pastor say one time, uh, he, he took a, famous, a quote from a famous motivating speaker, Charles Jones, and he was marquee as Charles Tremendous Jones, and he was a motivational speaker. And uh, he'd always quote this guy, and he'd always say this to his people. He'd say, you will be exactly five years from today the same person you are except for the books you read and the people you meet. 
Now, that was Charles Tremendous Jones' take on you developing yourself. And I, I, and I understand where Jones is coming with it, but I never understood uh, how a pastor could get up and say that to his people. And I always modified it somewhat. Uh, in fact, I, I, I said it one time, and he, heard he wasn't very happy about it when I said it. But I always, I always took it and put it into what I felt was a true biblical context. Because you will be five years from today exactly who you are today except for the book that you read and the person that you know in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that to me is the biblical process for it. But that's, that's where we're at. I find a lot of people today who, who know things about the Bible. But it's a very shallow, and I'm not against reading books. I read all the time. And uh, it's a thing where I think it's very important that you, you read. But I don't take what I read and run it around the Bible. I take what I read and run it through the Bible. I think the Bible forms a great filtering system for us. You know, and uh, they talk about, you know, the, all the information that they, they get. And, and they find all these things. I know, I, know, I know guys who simply the Internet has become their Bible. They don't read their Bible anymore. Why should you? you? You can find anything you want on the Internet, and you do know that everything on the Internet has to be true. <laughs> you can get everything you want off the Internet. And it's an, when a man is not disciplined or he really doesn't want to do the work that he's got to do to get out of the Bible what he has to get, hey, that's an easy alternative. And if there's any, been everybody on the face of the planet. Now, I don't know anything about car mechanics. I don't know anything about car salesmen. I don't know anything about doctors. I don't know anything about lawyers. I don't know anything about, but I do know something about preachers. Because I've been around them all my life. If there's any group of people that will nine times out of ten take the shortcut, it'll be a preacher. And our churches are filled with it today. And, uh, you know, they know things about the Word of God, but they don't know the Bible. I mean, for instance, I'll show you a couple of examples. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, that the Word of God is built on seven pillars. Do you know what those seven pillars are? I mean, how, how, it's kind of ludicrous. Yeah, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. I know I read the Bible and I love the Bible, but the Bible says that it's, the Word of God is built on seven pillars. There are seven things that hold this Bible up. See, that's knowing the Bible. That's not knowing some things about the Bible. That's knowing the Bible. That's knowing the Bible. We talked about it before on Thursday night Bible study. The Bible talks about there are seven mysteries. And you're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, that a pastor is supposed to be a good steward of those mysteries. He's supposed to pass them on to his people. And yet, if you go to the average church today, they wouldn't understand what the seven mysteries are. There are seven distinct baptisms in the Bible but they wouldn't know what that is. There's seven judgments in the Bible. There's seven resurrections in the Bible. Uh, the, the, you know, we talk about the seven things that changed the day you got saved. There's seven marriages in the Bible, and they all mean something, and they point towards something. There's seven suicides in the Bible. I had a guy one time that was a, a pastor, and his big stick was uh, he was a great guy on suicide. And he'd go into high schools and he'd go all around the churches and he'd hold conferences on suicide. And he was the guru of suicide. If your kid, you know, he, he saw suicide in everything. And he would get up there and he'd talk about it and he'd lay out and he'd give all his, 
facts and figures about suicides and how, and he tried to offer some support to it. And, and, I, and I, I was in a, a group meeting one time where he was talking about all this and he was an expert on suicide and he traveled around the world and if anybody wanted to know about suicide, he was the guy to ask. And I just stopped and said to him, I got a question for you then. I'm glad to finally find somebody who's an expert on suicide. Not that I've been thinking about doing it, but I, you know, but I, 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 tell you, I said, you can help me. I said, there's seven suicides in the Bible. Who are they? He had no clue. He was so busy amassing all the facts of teen suicide and the facts of all of the suicide and all of the theories that you get of suicide. He never thought that the greatest authoritative book on suicide would have been the Bible. And you find in this book seven people who committed suicide, each one of them different. And when you put them all together, you see, that's knowing the Bible. That's not knowing some things about the Bible. That's knowing the Bible. That's knowing the Bible. There's seven stages of spiritual growth. That's knowing the Bible. There's seven things that you're told to add to your faith. Somebody says, well, I'm struggling with my life. What do I do? Well, I'm going to go read this book, or I'm going to go read that book, or I'm going to grab this guy's stuff over here. Why not get the book that God wrote and simply, I guarantee, probably the problem you're having is you are truly saved. You're not in an adventure of adding those seven things to your faith. See how easy it is? You can stand up here all day and give facts about the Bible. And you hear pastors all the time that talk about things in the Bible. And I meet Christians all the time who think, uh, who, who have learned some things about the Bible. That's totally different, knowing the Bible. And then that's my third group. The third group you find are people who know the Bible. In my humble opinion, for whatever it's worth, I think the Christian, the child of God, if you've been saved 10 years, at least 10 years, I'll give you the first 10 just to figure out what's going on. I'll, I'll even stretch it to 15. I'll give you 15 years to figure it out. I think any child of God that's been saved 15 years or more ought to be able to, at any minute, in 30 seconds notice, ought to be able to stand up and lay out every book of the Bible as far as its doctrinal, inspirational, and historical application and lay that thing out with 30, 30 seconds notice. I think every, you ought to come to the place where if somebody asked you to speak at a Bible conference and, and you were excited about going to that thing and there was going to be a bunch of preachers there and they told you we want you to speak on, on, the, on, on the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment, whatever it is, and you worked and got that great sermon and, and so it was your turn to preach and you're sitting on the platform next to the pastor and, and the lady's up there to sing and you know you're going to have to go up and preach as soon as she sings because that's the way it does. And about the, about just as she starts to sing, the pastor leans over and says, are you ready to go? And you say, yes, sir. And he says, oh, by the way, I forgot to tell you, we've changed your preaching assignment. We want you to teach on now the book of Obadiah, Jonah, Tobacco, Habakkuk, Hezekiah. We, we, and he throws that book right in your lap with 20 seconds to go. Every child of God saved 15 years or more ought to be able to look at him and say, not a problem. I'll turn to that book and let it go. You see, that's knowing the Bible. That's just not knowing some things about the Bible. That's knowing your Bible. Knowing the Bible. Last night they had a youth thing here, and, and I, I uh, uh, was walking around, and I don't ever spend much time in the 
youth room back there, but I, that's where the food was last night. So I spent a lot of time back there, you know, <laughs> meditating, praying, and all those things, you know. And I was looking at Zach's board there that he, he's teaching on Thursday night when he has the guys in, or the kids in there. And I, and I thought, to my, and I looked at it, and I kind of stood back, and I thought, wow, now that is exactly somebody who is building a foundation in these kids' lives to know the Bible. You know, I know your kids are going to struggle with things in life, and I know that. And I know that there's times when you teach on this and you teach on that and teach on that. But I want to tell you, teaching on things in the Bible for your kids is absolutely worthless if they don't have a foundation about what that book is first. You've got to build on something. And I looked at that last night, and I thought, boy, they're getting a foundation. Not that I doubted that they weren't, but I understand that. They're getting it. I, I'd say... I'd say that as a Christian, you can, you can know where you're at in the Bible probably 85% of the time. And every child of God saved 10 years, 15 years or more ought to have that handle down. You ought to know the Bible. You don't want to just go through life knowing some things you've heard somebody say or something that you read. You want to be able to understand that Bible. I call it a working knowledge with the Scriptures. Being able to open up that book and know where you're at, know what you're dealing with about 85% of the time. I'll tell you right now, 15%, maybe 20% of the Bible, nobody's ever going to figure out. But, you know, everybody looks at the Bible as such a, a hard book to get their hands on. And part of that is, is because you're told that it's a hard book. Now, I'm going to take you the other way today, and I'm going to show you how easy it is. The problem is not hard or easy. The problem is the process by which you go through to get it. That's the key. Now, the first two people are quite common. The last one is rather hard to find, somebody who really knows their Bible. And yet I must say that some of you uh, here today uh, have a, are, are very good with the Bible. Uh, I've watched you grow, and, and you've not, you know, I've watched what you've done with the Word of God in your life, and, and you know the Bible very well. Uh, you know, you have what I would call a working knowledge with the Bible. Others of you are well on your way. You're well on your way. And... Uh, I think that what we're going to talk about today that God gave me some 35 years ago when I found this in the book of Proverbs, I think that many of you are ready for this. And as I, and, and, and as I said earlier, you know, I want to show you the process that, that God will give you uh, and through that process give you the knowledge of God. Not the knowledge about God. The very same knowledge that God has. That's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'm not talking about that you're going to get a lot of knowledge about God. No, I'm talking about you're going to get the exact same knowledge that God has. And that is what it takes for you to really understand the Bible. And uh, we talk about Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16 asks the question. It says, who hath known the mind of the Lord <coughs> that he may instruct him? And the question is, <coughs> how do you find out what God wants you to do? If God himself <coughs> doesn't tell you what he wants you to do in your life, he doesn't instruct you, how do you get that instruction? How is God going to judge you someday at the judgment seat of Christ for what you did or what you didn't do if he didn't instruct you in what he wanted you to do? That's the question. And the answer to that question is, is very clear. He says, who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? And then he goes on to say, we have the mind of Christ. And we don't have the mind of a couple of things that Christ knows. No, the word of God is the mind of Christ. 
That book is everything that is God's mind and everything that is God's thought. That book is, is eternal as God is. And when you have the Bible in your hand, and I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version, when you have the Bible in your hand, you have the mind of Christ. And that is all you need, but you've got to learn it. And let me just dismiss another myth here while we're here. <coughs> For, to learn the Bible and get the Bible, it doesn't take Bible college. It doesn't require formal education. If it took that, I would have never learned it. I was in the sixth grade so long, the kids brought me the apple. They thought I was the teacher. <laughs> it doesn't require a degree. You don't have to have some high IQ. It doesn't take Greek or Hebrew. No seminary. It just takes you and God in his book in a relationship, the father's instructions to his son. William Tyndale was, was one of the great, uh, uh, he was the second man that put the Bible out, which became, uh, was the forerunner of the King James Bible off the text that the King James Bible come from. In fact, 85% when the King James translator sat down in 1603 uh, to do the King James Bible, 85% of what they come out with in the King James Bible come off of his translation. And uh, he was greatly opposed for what he did because he, uh, he uh, like, uh, like uh, uh, Wycliffe before him, they wanted to put the Bible in the hands of a common man. And he produced a second English translation, uh, uh, Wycliffe, the first one, but he produced, Tyndale produced the, the second uh, from 1494 to 1536 English translation to the common people. At one time in Oxford, he was being crucified by the scholars because they thought, how dare you, how dare you take the word of God, which God has only entrusted to us scholars with the education, with the IQ, with the knowledge of the original languages. How dare you think that you can give those common people out there a Bible that they could understand? They're always going to need us to tell them what the Bible says. You know what he said? He looked at him and there was a boy out there, a plow boy out there applying in the field. You know what he said? He pointed out there and he said, someday that plow boy will know more Bible than all the scholars in England. You betcha. He understood it. Man asked me one time, he says, what is the key, Bob, to learning the Bible? And then he began to answer his own question. He says, well, I suspect it, you have to really study it. And I said, well, I said, study's important, but if you want the key to learning the Bible, it's not studying it. He says, well, I guess uh, then it's just reading it, meditating in it. And I said, well, that's important too, but your question is what the key was, and if you want the key to learning the Bible, it isn't reading it. He says, well, he says, wow, he says, I guess maybe it's, it's going to, you know, uh, uh, memorizing and going, and going to Bible college and, and getting the Greek and the Hebrew. And I said, no. I said, no, you asked what the key was. He says, well, yes, what is the, if it's not studying and it's not reading and it's Bible, not Bible college and not the Greek and the Hebrew, what is the key to learning the Bible? And I said, the key to learning the Bible is simply loving the Bible. Right. If you love it more than anything else on planet Earth, you're going to learn it. That's the key. That's the key. Now, we got, a, we got a generation of God's people today, probably the last four or five generations, that love everything in this life more than the book that God gave them. And that's why you'll find those first two groups. That's why you find people who, who, will, who will spend 20, 30 years going to church and never know anything about the Bible. That's why you'll find people that all their life, what they amass is just things about the Bible. They love everything else in life. They love the music. They love the song service. They love the special. They love the praise group. They love the big screens. I was just broke. They love all those things that you have out there except loving the most important thing that God ever gave you, and that's that book right here. And that's where it starts. 
When will that be back, Bob? Tuesday. Tuesday. Okay, good. <laughs> now, look at Proverbs chapter 2. And we know now that the book of Proverbs, the first eight chapters, is simply the instructions to a son by his father. And we know that as a picture, inspirationally, as God giving to you and me as his children. And in this chapter 2, in the first nine verses, you find eight things. Eight things that if you do these in accordance with your Bible and loving the Bible, you'll learn the book. I call them the eight absolute necessary things of getting the book uh, and getting it down in your life. Now, let's read it here in Proverbs chapter 2. Let's pick it up in verse 1, and then we'll begin to talk about it. He says this, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifted up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure, then shalt thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. He keepeth the paths of judgment. He preserveth the way of his saints. Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you so much for uh, the word of God that you've given us. And we love you, Father, for, uh, for the people that have come today and for the book that you have provided for us that we know that's without error and that we can trust. Trust with our very souls. Trust with our families. Trust with our relationships and trust in everything. And, Lord, I ask you today, Father, to, uh, to just take and open up our hearts, open up our minds, and to let us see and understand this great truth. Lord, I thank you every day for some 35 years ago on that morning when you showed me this great passage and how it changed my life. And Lord, how I've never left the passage or its concepts. I've not always done much right in my life, and I've screwed things up many, many times, but I've never forgotten, Lord, Proverbs chapter 2, uh, when you said, my son, uh, and he told me what to do, these eight things. So help us today, and we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. sake we ask it. Amen. Now, there's a couple of things to note here. First of all, just in general housekeeping, uh, this will be your fifth set of paragraph marks. Remember I told you that how important paragraph marks in the Bible and that we're going to come through Proverbs uh, by the paragraph mark. That's the best way to break it out. The other thing I want you to see that this is the fourth, fourth time uh, that he, uh, go, he says, my son. And I told you in the first eight chapters that there's 15 times that he says, my son. So this is the fourth one. The other thing I want you to see is you find the word understand or understanding here five times in nine verses. So this is going to be a key, uh, key passage. Just eight simple things. And then how it sounds so easy. Uh, but nothing will show us how unstructured or how dysfunctional or undisciplined we are uh, in the Bible uh, better than, than this passage. And let me tell you something. When I, I say that God showed me 35 years ago plus, that's true. But I want you to also know, I had to change some things in my life. I had to adjust some things in my life. For me, it wasn't just, oh, yeah, I see it, pick it up and run with it. No, I had to change some things in my life and adjust some things in my life, just like you're going to have to do yours. But this passage is one of the, I call one of the great bonus, bonus passages in the Bible. It gives you everything you need. Now, there's probably about 50 or 60 uh, passages in the Word of God that I look at strictly bonus passages. I mean, they just, you don't have to do a lot, bang, it drops it all in your lap right there. And... Uh, you know, the Bible, uh, we talk about the book of Revelation. 
But the Bible itself is a book of revelation, revealing things. I, I found in dealing with people over the years, you know, that we all, uh, we all have, not, not everybody, but many of us have an overinflated opinion about ourselves. I think uh, Dirty Harry said it best of all in one of his, one of his movies when he says uh, that you were a legend in your own mind. And I think that many God's people get to that place in their life. Nothing, nothing will reveal uh, things about us better than getting into the Word of God. And really, frankly, that's why so many people uh, don't want to get into the Bible. I mean, it will reveal your weaknesses. It will reveal your strengths. It will reveal your courage or it will reveal your, uh, your cowardice. It will reveal your ability to stand against opposition when things come into your life. Or it will reveal your inability to stand against things and just try to take the middle of the road. You see, the Bible is an incredible book, and it reveals some things about us. And nothing will reveal who we really are more than when we are faced with what we need to do with the Word of God in any given situation. That is the great litmus test. It isn't about what we talk about or how we talk about this or I know this or I studied this or I learned this or I've been here and got this. It isn't about that. What really proves who you are and what really reveals what you are, when push comes to shove, what do you do with the book? Are the principles in your life just as much as they are in your conversation? That's the key. And nothing will reveal that better than Proverbs chapter 2. Now let's begin to look at these eight things and uh, I, I think these are very instructive. And the first thing I want you to look at is verse 1, and he says this, My son, if thou wilt receive my words. Now that is your attitude toward the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, For when you're, for this cause thank we God uh, also without ceasing. Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is, it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Now, the first thing that verse says, that when God gave you the Word of God, it was not the Word of men. It was the Word of God. The next thing he says, that it will only work in you if you believe it. Now, that doesn't mean, well, I believe in God. The devil believes in God. It doesn't mean, well, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. It goes way beyond that. That's the surface stuff. It's your attitude about that book. It's your attitude of what you believe about it that makes it work effectually in you. And it starts with your attitude of receiving that book as the absolute infallible Word of God. I hear a lot of preachers today, a lot of Christians today think, well, the Bible's a good book, and, uh, but the Bible is only a translation. So the Bible, uh, that translation, uh, it's, it, it contains the Word of God, but it's not the Word of God. See, that's a big stick today. And I, I, I'm telling you right now, that Bible you hold in your hands, if you've got the right Bible, it doesn't just contain the Word of God, it is the Word of God. It is everything that God ever wanted you to have. I believe that Bible is the Word of God from cover to cover, including the cover. I mean every chapter. Uh, somebody Thursday night, uh, uh, the order of the book, somebody uh, asked Thursday night in Bible study, uh, the Enoch question. Uh, it was Aaron. Aaron asked the Enoch question. You know, and not only did I, in Genesis chapter 5, not only did I answer the question, but I showed you how that the, the structure of the chapters the structure of the chapters from chapter 5 to chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 shows you by the order of events the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could take you over to the book of 2 Chronicles and show you from 2 Chronicles right up to uh, the book of Proverbs how you have again everything laid out that shows you the premillennial return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and the pre-rapture uh, concept, uh, pre-trib rapture. And a lot of people today, you know, they're, they, they're, they, they read this stuff on the Internet. They read these books by these guys that put it out, and it looks good, so they buy it. But they don't have the ability to go beyond the, underneath the surface and actually see that the things that we believe, the traditions that have been held down through the true uh, church, uh, believes the Word of God, knows that it's the Bible itself that lays out the doctrines that we like and we teach and we preach. The events, the places like Bethel or Gilgal, Bethlehem, the structure of the Bible itself and the structure of the books, the chapters and the verse markings. When we get into Proverbs here a little bit farther on, we're going to get into the, the six things that God hates and the seventh is an abomination. And it's found in Proverbs chapter 6 and it, in verse 16. And then there's six things that God hates. What you have in that chapter is the character, structure, and the makeup of the man of sin, the evil man in the book of Proverbs. We know him as the Antichrist. Now, who would have thought that anybody, any guy, you think that when the guys translated that and put that in there and put that structure in there, that they saw that it was going to be about the man of sin? So they put it in chapter 6 in verse 16 and listed six things, 666? Six, six, six? I don't think so. That Bible is the Word of God in every aspect. And until you get that attitude in your heart that you accept it that way, you ain't going anywhere with it. You ain't going anywhere at all with it. It's God's work. We talked about the paragraph marks. Uh, every sentence, uh, the, the, you know, every aspect, the, the punctuation. I showed you in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, by the punctuation. Every word was ordained by God to show you something. And, and when I talk about the Bible being the Word of God, I'm not talking about that in that general, loose, gobbledygook sense that everybody talks about in it. I'm talking about that you can have an absolute standard in your hand that tells you everything in life that is the absolute knowledge of God. Now, everybody wants to have a relationship with God. You would think that if you ever really believed that this book was truly the mind of God in every sense, well, you'd be all over that book. Why is it that Things in your life take more precedent over the book that God gave us. I mean, hey, believe me, when God comes back in the millennium and have, the Bible says in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, has a perfect and pure language, and he will, I guarantee you when he put his book out, he put it out in a perfect language, and he put it out in English at a time when the English language was in its perfect form. The very idea of imperfect man today tearing apart God's perfect book. You know, and I've been around these guys all my life. It makes you feel real big and real important to stand in the pulpit and take the absolute final word of God and want to impress your people by standing there and saying, well, that verse doesn't mean what it says. Let me tell you what it means. I can't tell you the extent of exhilaration that these guys get from doing that. I call it the God syndrome. The fact that God gave a book and you're going to stand in the pulpit and you're going to tell them that God made a mistake and you're going to correct it. That judgment seat of Christ is going to be a great time. You and me as a mortal man correcting God in what he said. Origen did that in 185. We saw how it worked out for him. So the first thing he says is, my son, if thou wilt receive my words. There's your attitude. The second thing he says in verse 1 is, and hide thy commandments with thee. Now that's your personal time with God and his word. This will be Psalms 119, verse 11, where it says, Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I may not sin against thee. You know, uh, most Christians, uh, they have a, bless their hearts, and, and, and they just have a passing acquaintance with the word of God today. 
the shallowness of God's people. You know, your, your heart is your spiritual bank account. It's a storehouse of God's principles to get you through life. And the problem is you have nothing on the account. I, I've used the illustration before how that, you know, that if I go out tomorrow morning and start my car and the motor blows up and I have to go down to the garage and the guy says, well, you're going to have to have a new motor. It's going to be about $3,500. And so I say, oh, okay, that's fine. So I go down to my bank, you know, my friendly bank and go up to the teller up there and I say, you know what? And she says, how are you today? And I said, well, I'm not doing very good, but uh, my car blew up and my engine blew up my car and I got to get it fixed and all of that. And she says, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And I said, yeah. I, she says, well, how can I help? And I said, I'm glad you asked. I need $3,500. And she says, well, can I have your account number? Sure, here's my account number. She goes down and looks me up on the computer, you know, and comes back and she says, well, I'm sorry, you only have $2.28 in there. And I said, yeah, I know that, but I need $3,500. She said, well, I can't give it. I said, what are you talking about? That guy over here, she doled out about $1,800 to him. Right next here in this room, I should have went to her. She said, you don't understand. He had the money on the account. You don't have any money in your account. You want? I can give you $2.29 is all I can give you. I said, but you're a bank. Look at that big vault back there. You've got all kinds of money back there. She says, I know we do, but the bottom line is, I don't, you have a job? And I said, yeah, I got a good job. She said, well, I don't know what you do with your money, but you never brought any into the bank. And for us to give you money out in a time of need, you have to put something in, in the time you have it. Now, that's the same principle of the Word of God. The reason why you get into situations where you don't know what to do and you don't know how to handle it is because your bank account spiritually is empty. You have not hid the Word of God in your heart. You've not hid the commandments with you. Your personal time with God, I don't know what you do or even if you do it, but there's nothing on your account. You know, the most difficult time for me, and I struggle with it, I never say anything, but I struggle with it, <clears throat> is when you have to go to uh, uh, somebody dies or somebody's really bad off and somebody's this or somebody's that, you know, and, and you have to go, or in most cases when somebody dies and you're there when they die. The most difficult time uh, in the ministry is trying to give people, Christian people, comfort from the Word of God uh, when they don't have anything they've ever put in their life. I mean, Christians who all their life never memorized one verse. Christians all their life who, who lived their life and never took time to hide anything from God gave them. Their idea of God is he's a God on demand. I'm not going to do anything, put anything in, but when I demand something from you, God, give me somebody to do it. It's a fallacy of thinking that I'm going to go in there and just deal out a couple of verses like you deal out cards and make them feel better. There's no comfort in that. Listen, the Holy Spirit of God can only take what you've already put in your heart and use that when anybody tries to help you with the Word of God. You can't just go in and, and get a gunshot wound in the head and go in and put some neurosperms on it and say you'll be better in the morning. It takes a little more than that. You need something more than that. And when you have problems in your life and you've never put the Word of God in your life, I, and I'm in these situations many, many times where you have to go in there, and I feel the pressure because the family's hurting, or this, that, the person just died, and you go there and you talk to the wife or you talk to the boys or you talk to the dad, and you sit down there and you try to explain to him, and, and, they, and they, you try to explain to them, you know, the Bible and what God is doing. They just look at you in a blank stare. There's no way that if you don't sow the seed in your own heart when tough times come, you got to have something for it to land on. It's like those verses are like BBs off a stone wall. They just bounce off. 
then they look at me and they say, why? I don't understand why she died. I don't understand why he died. And, you know, and I, and honestly, I, I you know what, in, I, what I'm thinking inside is totally different than what I do. And I'll give them, do what I best I can and get in the word. But inside, somebody says, well, why did, why did, why did they go through what they went through? My, the, the real answer is, why shouldn't they go through what they went through? Do you know what Christ went through for you on Calvary's cross? If he suffered all the indignation and things that he suffered for him, if that's part of God's plan for you to be a testimony to go out that way, the way he went out on the cross for you, if he's willing to suffer that for you, should you have not got to the place in your life where you can lay there with whatever ailment you got, whatever you're struggling with, and be satisfied in the fact that the one that suffered for you, now you're going to get a chance to suffer for him and find the comfort in that, that, that you're only doing for him what he did for you on only on a lot lesser plateau? Can't get to it. Most of them can't. They say, why? And I want to say, why not? Is he any better? Is she any better than God's son? I mean, you actually think it was all right for God to turn his back on his son and hang there and die for you, and he comes down and you trust him, and -and so-and-so trust him, and your mom trusts him, and your dad trusts him, and now they go through their whole life and never do one thing with the Bible, never put one verse in their heart, and now you're sitting here at the end of their life where the God of comfort who died for you wants to take that loved one to heaven, and you you got to ask why? But that's where we're at today. And I do my part. I do. I put the neurospirum on all over the place. Man, I got in the spray gun now. Because I know what my job is, and I know that's not the time to do what I need to do. But I'm also telling you, brother, it's the time when the Word of God needs to come through for it. Because you don't have anything on the account. You don't have 10, 15, 20, 30 years of a life consumed by God and the Holy Spirit of God and the Word of God. And so it does nothing for you. And dealing with terrible issues in life without God's wisdom and understanding, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's just not going to, it's just not going to carry you through. And it, yet it, it happens all the time. Now look at the third thing, verse 2. So that, thou, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom. Now there's the work involved. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It takes work to get the word of God. The word there, incline, or the phrase there, incline thine ear unto wisdom, which suggests that you got to get close to God. Incline means to get down. you got to get close to God. you got to listen closely. you got to get close to Him. And, uh, you know, I've had people ask me all the time, why did make God write a book that is so hard for people to understand? Well, first of all, it's not hard to understand. But it's hard to understand when you do it your way instead of His way. It's only hard to get when you don't want to do it the way God made it to happen. But I'll show you why. The reason why you have to study. And He says, the study they show thyself approve unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of two, 2 Timothy 2.15. It takes a workman. And I'll show you why. Because there's a reason for it. At your job when you work, and I remember years ago, I worked at the Hoover Company back in North Canton before I moved here for four, five, six years. And uh, that was a company that made vacuum cleaners and made a washing machine, made a lot of different things. 
and uh, they had these big presses where they would press flat metal into canisters or whatever, and they would form them up, and they would always be working like three guys on that press. And back then, well, I guess it's the same way wherever you go, it was piecework. In other words, you, 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 the more you did in the eight-hour day, the more money you got paid. You had a certain goal. You had to say you had to have at least 200 hours. And anything over that, you started to make bonus on. And these guys, three of them, <coughs> one would operate the press, one would dip the stuff, the other one would put it, put it in, pick it up, put it over here. These three guys on these presses, and they were older guys, they, 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 I couldn't believe. I used to sit there. I used to drive a fork truck and bring them. I used to sit there and watch them. They were absolutely the smoothest transaction from the bin to the dump to the press to the line. I mean, it was bang, bang. They wish, I mean, these guys must have made a million dollars on the, on the line. They were just absolutely, but they'd been doing it for 30 years. They'd worked together, those three guys, for 30 years. And there was a lot of people like that. And you know as well as I do, if you in your job, if you work with somebody side by side and you're together with somebody for 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you're going to know that you're going to know at the end of that time, you're going to know everything about them. You fit together as a team. And I've seen husband and wives do that, and that's what husbands and wives are supposed to do. I've seen the prayer groups do that. That's what the prayer groups are supposed to do. That's the whole concept of our counseling ministry, why we do what we do and the way we do it to build that infusion of people working together that you can anticipate other people's, what they're going to do that you're working with. I see it with many of you that, that you'll call me up on the phone and you say, hey, I had to deal with so-and-so, and you start to lay out what you did to how you handled it, and I'm saying to myself, wow, that's exactly the same thing I would have done. You see, it comes from the time of working together. Well, God designed a book that you have to work to learn it side by side with him. See? You want to learn about God, do you? You want to learn God, do you? That he designed a book that you can't get it in one reading. You can't get it in one setting. It requires you to be a workman, and what you do for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, you work side by side with him. You work as he's a co-laborer with you. He works through that book with you, and you know what happens through the course of 10, 15, 20, 30 years? You know everything about him there is to know because you've worked with him. He's been, your, he's been on your team. He's your co-worker. The tragedy of saved people, 30, 20, 30, 40 years, and all of that time, they didn't have one day where they showed up for work with their partner the Holy Spirit of God. And you're wondering why, scratching your head, wondering why, what's wrong? How come I don't know the Bible? You haven't been to work. You haven't picked up your partner and went to work. And through the process of him showing you and you working together after 10, 15, 20 years, you know everything about God there is to know. Now the last thing he says here, in the last part of that verse says that that needeth not to be ashamed. In the New Testament, wherever you find the word ashamed, you want to mark it down. It will always be in context of the judgment seat of Christ. It will always be in the context of Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, where it talks to that church of Laodicea, that the shame of your nakedness doth not appear. A church that has forsaken the word of God. I'm not going to preach on it this morning. It's another whole message, but it's simply the judgment seat of Christ. And getting the book down to you in your life now means everything at the judgment seat of Christ. 
Well, the fourth thing, verse 2, and apply thy, apply thy heart unto understanding. This will be the application of the Bible. God people make many fatal mistakes when it comes to God and the Bible. But one of the biggest that they make, and this is why churches are filled with, with saved people who, who have went to church all their life and yet know nothing about God or the Bible uh, than the day they walked in, is the fact that they thought that just attending a church and serving uh, or a church service and listening to the sermon or the message, uh, I mean, what, in most churches, three times a week? You go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. And, uh, and the first thing you need to realize is that churches today aren't really designed to teach you anything. Churches today are designed to entertain you so you'll come back next week. They want to entertain you better than the other church you were at so that you'll come back to them for the entertainment. I'm not inter entertaining you. If my teaching of the Bible and my belief in the Bible and my laying out the Word of God for you and your family and your wife and your kids isn't enough to keep you here, move out. I understand. But churches aren't designed for that. But I'll tell you something else. Reading and studying the Bible won't give you the Bible. You've got to apply what you read. There has to be an application to it. You have to apply your heart to understanding. Applying means you take what you hear and then you apply it to your everyday life. You take what you hear, you take what you study, you take what you read. And then you apply it to your everyday circumstances with your own personal life, with your family, with your children. Now, application demands determination. It demands structure. It demands self-discipline, and it demands self-denial, and it demands self-control. It's simply taking what you hear and what you read or what God gives you and then developing it into your lifestyle through the principles. You hear me say it all the time. The job of every Christian, once we believe that the Word of God is God's mind and God's opinion and God's thoughts, then the job of every Christian is to make God's thoughts your thoughts. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, when you go to your parent-teacher conferences, I used to hate those as a kid growing up. <coughs> my, my teacher, would, would my te all of my teachers, would always sum me up the same way. They would never get into my good habits or this because they saw in me uh, a lot of probably good things, but they saw my, my, my number one flaw, and I used to get so sick and tired of it. In fact, I could go there after three or four years of parent counseling teacher meetings. I could sit there, and I could, I could mimic the words of what she was saying out of my mouth, and they'd always say the same thing. He's a good kid. He doesn't cause any problems, but his biggest problem is he just won't apply himself to anything, and that was my problem. She said he daydreams. He looks out the window. Well, there's a lot going on out there. <laughs> Man, things moving around out there. You want to check it out. You know, they, she said, well, he looks around. You know, he just doesn't, he doesn't apply himself. And, you know, many teachers, you know, when they talk to the, uh, the kids, especially today, you know, that's what parents hear. He's a good kid. He really doesn't cause any problem. But when it comes to class, he just doesn't apply himself to what's there. And, you know, I understand that at this point because I'm now a teacher and I, have a, I don't have a, a classroom in the sense of the public school system, but I have a church and I have to teach people. And I want to tell you, that's the number one issue with God's people today. They don't apply themselves. They don't want to learn anything new. They, you know, they come to a point in their life and, you know, if, if you approached your life in a general sense, like you approach 
the Bible, you'd be homeless and we'd be giving you hamburgers and hot dogs down in, down in, in the inner city. I mean, you got a job. Probably nobody here started out, I don't know what you do. Some of you are welders, some of you are, you know, electricians, some of you are plumbers, some of you are, but you didn't just you didn't come out of you didn't come out of being born and, and, and have a you know a toilet plunger in your hand. You or a pair of wire cutters. There was some point in your life you had to learn electricity. You had to learn to be a plumber. You had to learn to be this, you had to learn to be that. Some of you were great with computers. You just didn't you just didn't come into life with a computer in your hand. You had to learn it. You had to apply yourself. And everything in life where you're at, if you got anywhere in life, you had to apply yourself to learn it. It just didn't happen. You had to actually take the time to, to, to apply yourself to learn it. <clears throat> this is stupid, I know, but it's the best illustration I have. The hardest thing I ever had to do, and my wife and my kids will remember this, to apply myself to do is, and you'll love this, Donnie, is when I used to hunt turkeys. I got the bug for hunting turkeys. I think turkey, and everybody makes you, stupid people turkeys, call them turkeys. You don't know anything about turkeys if you call stupid people. They're the smartest birds on the planet. <laughs> They'll see you long before you see them. I was sitting up on a hillside one time down in Warsaw, about halfway up in the tree line, and along the cove down here and about 400 yards over saw two turkeys walking down the deal and I was in the woods up on the hillside camouflage and they were walking around and the sun was in their eyes I stood up to get a better look and they turned one right up in that wood they saw me they're not dumb and you gotta you know you gotta be smarter than they are to hunt them and you know every once in a while some bozo will just you know walk into a herd of them but that doesn't happen very often you got to learn how to do it. And I started, I started with the typical box call, you know, that makes the squawk. I mean, it's a terrible thing hunting turkeys. It's in mating season. They want to get with a woman. They're all excited about it. And you get them all lathered up, and you come in, and you kill them. That's a terrible thing to do. <laughs> That's what we do. Real men do it. <clears throat> anyway, so I got the box call. And then they had a little slate call, you know, you squawk in the thing. But real men put the turkey call in their mouth. And it looked like a little round, like a little horseshoe with a piece of tape, tape thing up with a little, little thing on there. You put it in, your back, in, your, in the back of your throat and you blow air over it and you can make great, great turkey calls. Well, I swallowed four of them before I ever got it done. <laughs> and I tell you what, I wanted to do nothing in my life more than, than, than to... to, to uh, to, to call a turkey in with a turkey calling in my mouth. I mean, uh, children use the call, box call. Real men, real men, you know. I never went so far to put a thing of skull in my back pocket, but, but I wanted a turkey. I wanted to learn how to do it. I practiced. I practiced. I practiced. I mean, my family was ready to throw me out of the house. I, and, it, I, I mean, and I stayed with it. And I, I, I learned a couple of lessons. The more I tried to do it, the worse I got at it. So I, I realized take short jumps at it. And then, and, 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 but I worked, and boy, I worked, and I worked, and I worked, and I worked. And one day, one day, it, it just all came together. It got to the right place in my mouth. My tongue got in the right area, and I, the air got over it, and I made my first audible turkey squawk. <laughs> and once I did it, I re remembered how I put everything up there. And now, I haven't hunted turkeys for years. You give me a turkey call, I'll put it in my mouth. And I guarantee you, if I stay right here, get the kids off the steps because they're going to be coming down the steps. I can do it. 
So you know what? That is To me, that's the greatest example of me applying myself to something. Boy, I had to work at it. And I failed a lot. I got the idea that, you know, the turkey call was the wrong one. So I must have bought 5,000 of them. I had them in all colors. I thought maybe that would help. It, no, it took just staying with it long enough, making the mistakes, learning by what didn't work. And pretty soon I got it. And pretty soon it came to the point where uh, I, and it's all because I applied myself. But you know, it's the same way in whatever you do. Uh, you know, when I first, when I first was in school, I didn't do well in school. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't do well in English. Uh, I liked to read, but I, I wasn't a very good reader. I didn't understand a lot of big words. And uh, it was a thing where uh, there was a lot of things that I was not good at that in school I didn't care about. But once I came to the Bible and years later and I realized that how important the Bible was, then I had to come to the point where I realized that I had to apply myself to some things because I recognized how important it was to read. So I went from somebody who couldn't hardly read to somebody who got to a point where you could read 800 words a minute. And I, I got to the point where I could, I could just, I, and I did that because I wanted to read the Bible. And then that was another stupid thing I did because, you know, I, it was a time of my life when I read through the Bible every, every 30 days. And, and, and that was a goofy thing. At the end of three years, I was all messed up because I, made, I got my priorities out of whack. It, I, I, it was the fact that I was taking pride in the fact that I got through the Bible every 33 days or 30 days, but I had to learn a lesson. It wasn't how many times I went through the Bible, but it was how many times the Bible went through me, see? And so I, I, I quit that. I mean, my whole life has been trial and error, especially with electricity. <laughs> Don't stick your tongue on that one thing there because you'll find out if it's hot or not real quick. But anyway, but, but that's the way life is. You didn't, I know a lot of you have natural ability for sports, but you didn't learn the technique that you have just because you got up one morning. You had to play a lot of ball. You had to apply yourself to a lot of things. And, you know, it doesn't matter whatever you do. You have to apply yourself. I've watched people apply themselves to everything. I've watched guys who didn't know anything about welding or anything about electricity or anything about plumbing or anything about those trade deals that they taught themselves, went to school, learned, and got it all down and became it. But for some reason, when it comes to the Bible, I'm not going to apply myself. When it comes to the Bible, I'm not going to look at my deficiencies of learning that book and then and then add them to my life. I'm not. I'll do it over here, but when it comes to that book, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to work at my, my weaknesses. I'm not going to fix what's wrong about me so I can learn how to apply. I'm not going to work on the level I need to to get the book. And that's the downfall when it comes to the Word of God because unless you're willing to apply it, you're never going to get it. And I told you when I started, there's some things in my life that I had to, I had to adjust and had to change to. There's things I had to realize that if I'm going to get this and I'm going to do this, then I've got to do it. All right, five and six. They'll go be together. Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifteth up thy voice for understanding. Now, this will be your prayer life with the Bible. And, uh, you know, this will be crying out and lifting up thy voice. Now, for this one, for me, it's Psalms 119, verses 1 through 176 verses. I don't know if you understand that passage or not, but that is 176 verses. And every verse says something about you learning the Word of God. I saw that immediately. I attributed that psalm to David's relationship with the Word of God. And I figure if it worked for him, it probably worked for me. 
at is simply taking time before you ever begin to study the Bible to ask your co-partner, the Holy Spirit of God, to teach you. And I remember early on, I still have it marked in my Bible, uh, that I developed a prayer out of, out of Psalm 119, out of those 176 verses, and it was based on David's prayer. And I looked at that thing, and I, I, I broke it down into 19 different petitions. And I would sit down before I'd ever study the Bible, and I would take passages that would basically talk about, God, if you give me the word, I'll do this for you. It was David telling God, if you give me your word and teach me your word, then I'll, I'll, I'll stand before kings and queens and, and, and all of those things. And I, I, I went through and handpicked for me. I mean, there's 176 verses. The mathematical options are endless. And I built that whole thing around uh, my own personal prayer of asking God to teach me the Word of God. I'd sit down and put a chair across from me and sit down here, and I'd read that prayer at my own pace, at my own time. And in each one of those petitions, I'd stop and ask God to give me what it was saying there, pretend like he was sitting in that chair. You have to cry out. You have to lift up your voice. You have to come to the place where you, you ask God to give you the Word. You have to show him in your heart that that's what you want. You're crying out for, some, for something uh, like a little child that, that has to have it from his father. And he, he, he responds to that. And when you sit, nothing God loves more than somebody sitting and reading the Word of God back to him. And you give him those things. And yet you put it in such a form that you're saying, God, if you give me your Word, I'll do this with it. I'll stand before kings. I'll stand before the enemy. I'll stand before the people. I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll, I'll rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. I'll love thy word above gold, yea, above fine gold. Those are the things you have to do. You have to come to the point where you, in your prayer life, you cry out and lift up your voice. Oh, God, teach me your word. Well, seven and eight, they go together. And this will be if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasure. This will be your desire for the Bible, the excitement about the Bible. And, there, and there's two things here in this one that's like there was in the last one. Uh, seeketh and searcheth uh, as for silver and hid treasures. You know, uh, I don't know that most God's people even realize what they have in the Bible. Over the years, I've, I've observed people and I've watched some things. Over the years, I've watched what God makes people, what they get excited over. In fact, I'll tell you the truth. I think if you just watch a Christian or somebody that claims to be a Christian throughout the 5, 10, 15 years, and you just simply watch what they get excited about and watch what they get angry about, you'll learn a lot about that person. Uh, because those are the two main things we do. In 1880s, out in California at Sutter's Mill, they had the great gold rush. Half the people on the East Coast left to go find gold. Today, we do it in the form of lottery tickets. Today we do it in a form that you can win $900 million, $500 million, and people there stand in line to get it. I love the National Geographic channels where they show the divers down there trying to find the Spanish galleons and all the gold that they found down there. But for a Christian, the excitement of every day opening them up the chest of gold called the Word of God and finding a treasure. 35 years ago on a, Monday, on a Saturday morning, 35 years ago on a Saturday morning, I opened a treasure chest and God gave me Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, and I never left it, I never lost it. That was my treasure for me. And the day God put me on the path to give me his word. The excitement of can't wait to get home, uh, to get into the book and see what God has for you. And most of God, the tragedy is that most of God's people have no, absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. I've seen people at the gas stations when the lottery goes up to 900 million or 700 million. Man, you get in there and... And they're just standing in line buying lottery tickets. 
And I, I look at that thing and I say, at a chance, at a chance, what is a chance? One in 10 million or one in 100 million? And they stand in line. Some of them spend, you know, $200 buying lottery tickets at four or five different places. And I look at people doing that and I'm thinking to myself, you do that in a one in 100 million chance when you got a book at home that'll give you something every time you open it. I stand in line one time and this guy was kind of a heavy guy who was in front of me. And I just hate when you go get gas and you got to wait there and there's some, two people in front of you and they're buying those scratch and sniff things, you know, you get, <coughs> you scratch off the deal, you know, and you win a prize or whatever. And I'm in there and in line and this guy, I mean, he's a pretty good sized guy and he's going at it. He's, but he won't move out of the way. He bought 20 of them. And he's over there with a little nickel or whatever, and he's scratching them off, and his whole body just shaking, you know, with that thing. And I'm from behind, you know, and I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, I, all I want to do is pay for my gas. You know, Krispy Kreme donuts are in a case over there. I'm having a real attack of going to buy one of those, and I got to get out of here. And he's just standing there bubbling back and forth, you know, as he's shaking that thing out of there. And he's going out, nope, didn't win. Nope, didn't win. And I'm thinking of how stupid that is. And I paid for my gas, and he left, you know, and I paid for my gas, and I, was, I could see I was waiting to get up there, and he says, he does that every week. And I said, yeah, I guess so. I just walked out. I got in my car, and I was driving home. And the Lord spoke to me. The Lord says, what's your big deal? He says, what are you so upset about some guy standing up there, buying them lottery tickets and scratching that stuff off and finding the wins or anything and being excited about it? He says, you do the exact same thing every time you open that book with me. Now, that's his world, and that's where he's at, and that's what he does. You do the exact same thing with my book. And I thought to myself, Lord, you're right. Because to me, that book is a winner every time. You'll never scratch something off of there. You'll never search inside it and not come out a winner. That's the book God gave you. That's the book God gave you. But most of God's people, they don't even understand what I'm talking about. Now, look at verse 5, the final result here. When you do these eight things, let's look at them again. He says there, If thou wilt receive my word and hide my commandments with thee. He says, So thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding. Then he says, Yea, if thou criest after knowledge and lifted up thy voice for understanding, and then if thou seekest her as silver and searchest her as for hid treasure. Verse 5, Then, and I might say only then, shall thou understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Notice, not the knowledge about God. When you do these eight things, you will find the knowledge of God, the exact same knowledge that God has about everything in life, God's opinion on every issue in life. The book of Proverbs itself, chapter 8 through chapter 30, is the issues of life out of, laid out on solid principles. You know, I told you this Thursday night, and I, I believe it's so true. I believe one of the great aspects aspects of the Bible is the Bible uh, is the model for everything. I believe the model for everything is right in that Bible. I think it's one of its greatest assets to me. Uh, I believe that the model, uh, you know, you have a model uh, if you want to get married, there's a model for an engagement. If you want to get married, there's a model for marriage. If you want to find a spouse, there's a model for finding a spouse. There's a model for training up your children. There's a model for disciplining your children. There's a model for ministry. There's a model for building a church. There's a model for dealing with your children when they get into the world. 
There's a model for, uh, for the church structure and organization. There's a model for uh, building leaders. There's a model for studying and learning the Bible. There's a model for the Christian life. There's a model for missions. Everything, and there's a model for finding and learning God's word, Proverbs chapter 2. Everything, God has a model for it. And when you get into the Bible and you learn those models because it's God's opinion on telling you what to do. When you get the knowledge of God, the same exact knowledge that God has, you then operate on a level that allows you to live above the circumstances. You know, I told this Thursday night, wouldn't it be great as Christians if once we got saved, we never had to make another decision in our life? that God just came down and made a decision for us. Because part of the problems that we all have is, is faced with decisions we have to make. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if God would have done it that way where if after we get saved, we have a decision about where we got to work or what we got to do here or what we're going to do with this or what we're going to do with that, if God would just come down and make that decision for you? That would be the most wonderful thing on the planet. Well, I got some news for you. He has. Because there is no reason why you, as a child of God, ever have to make a decision again. Because God has already given you a book that contains the principles and the models of making that decision. He's already made it for you. All you got to do is follow it. You don't have to get involved in it at all. The principles make it, those decisions for you, and that's so very important. You don't have to think about what am I going to do. The principle tells you what is there, and you let the principle make the decision for you. Look at verse 6 and 7. For the Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walk uprightly. The three precious gifts that God wants to give to us after the gift of salvation. And you know as well as I do, salvation is the greatest gift God ever gave man. Romans 6, 23, the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But when you receive that gift, now God has a new beginning for you. And God has a host of other gifts that he wants to give you now that you're saved. Matthew 7, 11 says, if you, been, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things unto them that ask him? And in verse 6 and 7, we see the three greatest gifts that God gives to man after he's saved. And all of these are in a biblical sense and stand totally against the worldly knowledge and worldly wisdom. He says in verse 6, for the Lord giveth one wisdom. For out of his mouth cometh two, knowledge, three, and understanding. There's your three gifts. The three gifts that God has for us that most people, save people, refuse to take. Then once you receive those gifts and you get them by going through Proverbs chapter 2 and getting the knowledge of God, look at verse 7. Then he layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. Now there's your storehouse we talked about. <clears throat> there's your spiritual bank account. Him laying up sound wisdom in your heart through the principle. So when any circumstance comes into your life, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to wonder about it. You know exactly what God's doing. Now, learning uh, the laying up of sound wisdom, if we take that on in the New Testament, follow that word sound in a word study, laying up the, of sound wisdom will provide five things in your life. Getting God's wisdom, getting God's knowledge, and getting God's understanding will produce five things. Sound wisdom will give you five things. First thing it in Titus and 1 Timothy 1, uh, it says it gives you sound doctrine. The second thing in 2 Timothy 1.7, it gives you a sound mind. And the third thing in Titus 1.13, it will produce a sound faith. And then the third, fourth thing in 2 Timothy 1.13, it produces sound words. And the last thing in Titus chapter 2, verse 8, sound speech. See what it does? 
it gives you the ability to speak soundly because you believe something soundly based up God laying up sound wisdom in your heart. Look at verse 8 and 9. He keepeth the paths of judgment and preserveth the way of his saints. Then shall thou understand righteousness and judgment, equity, yea, every good path. Notice again our, our theme verse for the name of our church, every good path, Jeremiah 6, 16. Uh, you know, we call ourselves old paths because it tells you that uh, we're to stay on the old path. The key word in that thing is, 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 is the word preserve, uh, the way of his saints. You want your way preserved? The word of God for you in your life will preserve your marriage. It'll preserve your life. It'll preserve your family. It'll preserve your kids. It'll preserve your ministry. It'll preserve your relationship with, with God. It'll preserve your health. Getting back to the old paths, staying on it will require the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, and the understanding of God. Verse 9 says, Then shalt thou understand righteousness and judgment and equity, yea, every good path. Now here's how it works, and we'll close with this. When you get the knowledge of God, you get God's knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Then you can grasp all things, and God will store them up for you in your heart. And never will you or your family be moved off of those things. You never will. I was reading, I was at a church someplace this last week, I can't, or two weeks ago, I can't remember where it was, and they had verses up all over the, all over the church, and they were out of the NIV. And one of the verses, which is one of my favorite verses anyhow, was in Psalm 16, 8. And in your King James Bible, it says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I, and I shall not be moved. That's a great verse. That's, I've claimed that verse more and more times in my life and probably any other verse. But the NIV doesn't say it that way. The NIV changes the verse and what it really changes and the key to there is the fact that thou shalt not be moved. The NIV takes out the word moved and says, thou shalt not be shaken. Now, whoever did that translation probably was a milk-toast Christian and never got any problems in his life. But I want to guarantee you after 45 years in the ministry and 60 years of living my life on planet Earth, there's plenty of time this whole world's going to shake you. There's plenty of times in your life you're going to get shaked and shook and shooken and shooked up. There's plenty of times you're going to get shaken in this old world. That's not the promise. The promise is that you would not be shaken. The promise is in the shaking, you'd not be moved. That's the book. That's the book. That's the book. Now he says this. He says you'll understand righteousness. That's Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ is God's righteousness, and everything about him is total and complete, holy and righteous. When you have Christ down in your life, then you'll be able to understand the counterpart of God's love and righteousness, and that's God's judgment. We saw it last week in Proverbs 28, 5, where evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. When you understand the righteousness of God and the judgment of God, you'll have the equity in your life. And what was equity? That's balance. A balance between the two major factors of God and His Son. Righteousness and His judgment. And that forms a moral compass for you. It forms a moral, a moral balance for you of understanding what is right and understanding what is wrong. Eight things today that will give you that book. Eight in your Bible is the number of new beginnings. 
If you want a new beginning in your life, this is how you get it. Works for salvation is being taught today, that you got to work to be saved. And of course, we know that's not true. Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, uh, lest any man should boast. God gives his salvation free, but what you must understand is after we get that free gift, you now have to work to learn his word with him as your co-laborer. He'll give you salvation free, but if you want to learn the Bible, you've got to go to work. You've got to be a workman. The Bible says in Philippians 2.12, a verse that everybody struggles with, where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not a hard verse. It simply means that, that now you have to, you have to, you don't get, your works don't get you saved, but rather now that after you get saved by God's grace, you now work to develop it and make it work for you. You have to go to work. A workman with need not to be ashamed. You see, I, I, it's the same format that we follow in dealing with people. I can have all the answers to your issues. You can come in with a thousand different problems, and I can say, hey, I've got the answer to your problem. We can fix your problem today. I can have all the answers in the world, but if you're not willing to do in your life what you need to do to fix it, it means nothing. And the Bible has every issue of life. It's God's mind to you. It tells you the patterns. It gives you everything you need to know. But if you're not willing to put those eight things in your life, if you're not willing to take the instructions of a father to his son, if you're not willing to do those eight things to put the Word of God into your life, it ain't going to go anywhere. You'll wind up 20 years from now not knowing any more about the Bible than you do now. You'll wind up 20 years from now with, in the same mess, but your kids will be in a bigger mess because you never taught them anything because you never learned anything. It just follows it all the way down. And that's why you have to come to the place in your life that you're going to learn the Word of God. And I believe most of you do. Or you wouldn't be here. That's not my point, not my question. The question is, will you begin to do in your life what you have to do? Those eight things changed my life 35 plus years ago on that morning when God gave it to me. And it became my treasure along with a million other things that he gave me. Every time I open that book every day, I win the lottery every time it opens because it's God's book written to you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for today. Thank you for.